You're listening to Nightlight. Hi, and welcome to Nightlight. With me on the program today is Carol Ward. Carol is the founder and director of Favor Africa. She's had a book just published about her mission to northern Uganda and South Sudan, available on Amazon, called Send Me Where No One Wants to Go. We have a guest tonight on Nightlight. Well, I'm with Carol here on the porch of my house, which is near the beautiful Lake Victoria on the outskirts of Kampala in Uganda. Now, you may hear some background noises of children playing, birds chirping, dogs barking, but rather than go into the studio, I thought we could do the interview where we're relaxed right out here on the porch. Anyway, thank you, Carol, for taking your time to be with us on Nightlight and sharing with us your story. Thank you. I'm Carol Ward and uh, third generation missionary. Um, my grandparents were in China for 30 years um, and taken POWs during communist invasion, so there was a history there. And then my parents were in uh, Philippines for 45 years, but Bible translators um, with um, in Muslim terrorist area, which is where I grew up. And then I've been in Africa now for uh, going on 15 years. You came as a nurse. Right? Yes, I'm a nurse, but uh, but came to Uganda just with a passion for prayer and said, Lord, send me where no one else wants to go. And that's all I prayed. I mean, I, I want to see unreached people groups reach for Jesus. Carol, before you talk about the miracles, amazing miracles that the Lord has done through your ministry in South Sudan, maybe you could briefly tell us about your mission to northern Uganda. Well, when I came to northern Uganda during the war, there was no mission organization that would cover me as an umbrella or send me out, so to speak, because it was a war zone. And they all said, we're not going to pay to have you killed. We're not going to support you to come home in a body bag. So I knocked on one door after the other and nobody would send me. But I knew that's where I was supposed to go. They'd evacuated missions, uh, you know, kids abducted, thousands upon thousands, 20 years of war. I was already living up there when the UN discovered it about two years later and said it was one of the worst atrocities they'd seen since Hitler. So uh, when I went up there, I thought, well, I better check with the U.S. Embassy. And they said, no, can't go. And if you do go, we're just crossing your name off the list. In other words, you, you're not going to live. So non, non-existent. But I knew I was supposed to go. So I went alone. And I didn't go with an intention of starting a work or starting an organization. or uh, I just wanted to be nameless, faceless, live in a village, and just pray to see God stop the war and uh, bring revival where there was never revival before. Just to clarify for our listeners, Carol, you're talking about the war with Joseph Kony and the LRA in northern Uganda, right? Yes, northern Uganda at that time, which was about 2002 when I first came up north. So when I crossed the Nile River and came alone, which is another testimony in itself, how that all happened and how God spoke to my heart to come, I realized this was the place I prayed for. No one else wanted to go there. People said, if you go, you'll never come out alive. It's a black hole. You'll fall into it, so forth. But, um, but God spoke to me the whole way up, delivered my heart from fear. There's no fear in love. And, uh, and as I came north, my only focus was to pray. 
And so I had no intention of starting an organization. I came alone. Later, uh, a Choli, which is the tribe in the northern part of Uganda, a Choli people that I had met from southern Uganda followed me up, and, um, and that started the first house of prayer. So the war stopped through prayer about 2004, 2005, and there was a you know, sequence of events as we began the house of prayer. Uh, but as the war came to an end and people poured into the little mission house where I was living, their one cry was, help me reach my people. And I'm thinking, I didn't come to start anything, you know. And But as I prayed, I said, okay, what now, Lord? You've, you've answered our prayers. The war's over. And he said, begin to unwrap the grave clothes of the people because the healing of the land is in the nationals, in the indigenous, their destiny. So I thought, okay, what does that look like? Teach me. And as they came one after the other, one said, I want to work with children. Another said, I want to do trauma counseling. Another, I want to do radio. Another, I want to do Bible school. Well, the government said, you have to get registered. This is a high profile area. You can't be up here. You can't even pass out Bibles unless you have an NGO, which is similar to 501c3 registration. Uh, so I had to, and God gave it a name, you know, favor of God after reading the book of Ex- Esther and realizing how much favor Esther had before the king, uh, through prayer to deliver a nation. And I said, Lord, if I'm going to be up here, that's all I need to live by is your favor. And so it was just birthed out of prayer. We registered, the ministry started, and it just started with the nationals. And here, 14 years later, it's a staff of almost 70 full-time indigenous nationals that are now being trained to go northward into Africa as missionaries. Wow. Well, Carol, let's just take a break for you for a song. I think this one from Simon Rugley goes very nicely along with the title of your book, which is Send Me Where No One Wants to Go. This is called Where He Leads, I Will Follow.
from Simon Rugley, where he leads me, I will follow. You're listening to the latest edition of Nightlight, in which I've invited our guest, Carol Ward, to share about her mission. And we're sitting on the porch of my house near the beautiful Lake Victoria. It's so peaceful and serene and just beautiful here. It's hard to imagine that just a few hundred miles away in South Sudan, it could be so, so different and so dangerous with horrible killings and different factions and tribes literally slaughtering each other, with millions of refugees fleeing over the border to find refuge in Uganda. And yet, in spite of all of this, Carol, you've dared to go in where angels fear to tread. And I'd like you to share with us some of the amazing miracles that you've experienced in South Sudan over the recent years. One of the things that... um that my heart is always focused on is, is a, it, well, the main thing is a great commission. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. And I realize it's real easy to come and go and do evangelism, but discipleship means getting in the trenches and living life with people. And it's a lifelong process to see a transformation uh, of a nation, of a generation, transform people, transform nations. And so... That's a lot of work, and it's a lot of time and effort because you're entering into culture to to see it become kingdom culture, but keep the good and spit out the bad, you know. So with that in our hearts, about 2007, before South Sudan became an independent country, I started crossing the border and going into South Sudan with teams of Ugandan missionaries that now I had trained. And we had always prayed, if you want God uh, to do something for you, begin praying that for somebody else. Because what you give, you receive. So we've been praying for this nation for quite some time. So as, as we prayed, we've said, Lord, what do you want us to do to reach them? We'd put our hands on the map. We'd say, where should we go? Where do we begin? They've had 55. I want to say 55, it's not 55, it's more like 67 year, consecutive years of guerrilla war. South Sudan, or Sudan at that time. And you just think they, they were born in war, they've grown up in war, and one guy was 65, almost 70, and he was just crying. He said, and I don't want to die in the war. But 
no government, no UN, nothing has been able to stop this. But because of what we saw God do in northern Uganda, when the UN said it was the worst atrocities they'd seen since Hitler, government couldn't stop it. We knew it had to do with Islamic strongholds being fed their weapons. Kony was fed his weapons from, from northern Muslim terrorist groups. And so there was a mixture of cult, tribalism, spiritual darkness, you know, uh, you know, Christians against Muslims, that kind of thing, just continuation. Well, this is the same thing. But because of what we saw God do in northern Uganda, we said, Man, he can do it again. He can do it again. So we started going. And we went with the gospel and we went with prayer in 2007. And we began uh, kind of researching the area and saying, where are the most rural tribes? We went to naked headhunter out up in the mountains of eastern Equatoria, unreached with the gospel. And you'd think they had spears, but these guys all have AK-47s that they've confiscated off of the bodies of dead soldiers after that many years of war. And the kids keep their cattle and guard the cows with AK-47s, eight-year-old children. So they're very unpredictable. They kill everybody. And then we've been into the Arab capital at that time of Wow, which is extremely uh, Middle Eastern and Arab ruled and, and Muslim influence, which is on the western part of South Sudan, all the way up to Awil, which is by Darfur. And five days driving through cattle raiders and cattle ranchers and nomadic people that would just shoot and kill and, you know, rot, steal cows, pulled off the road by gunpoint, by military, many, many, many stories. So when we started praying for South Sudan Sudan at that time, we thought, you know, how do we go in? Because to establish a portable Bible school, which is discipleship, and we stay on the ground in an area for two months in one village to see a village really reached. And that's our, our the beginning of our, of our discipleship foundation. And we've been doing that all over northern Uganda. Probably a thousand churches planted after the war within five years. It just, it just was a radical explosion. So we wanted to take this same concept north. But we needed to start with prayer and we needed to start with evangelism because the nation's still at war. So one of the trips I was taking up north, we had planned to leave on a certain day. And I had my whole team with me. And that particular day, I started just throwing up. I was sick, and I don't ever get sick. And I thought, this is really weird, and we've got everything ready, and the cars are packed, and the team's ready, but we couldn't travel, and I was kind of frustrated about it. But as I was praying, I had such a peace in my heart that somehow God was blocking us from going that day. Uh, You know, I went through the day like that. It was fine by evening. We got in the car. We went the next morning. We get up to Sudan, cross over the borders. Military friends meet us there, Christian military people. And they're going, thank God you didn't come yesterday. And I just said, why? What happened? And they said, well, uh, there's three factions of military all fighting. And, and uh, refugees, of course, over a million now have have crossed the border and got into the South Sudan refugee camps. But, but at that particular time, he said... Um, the uh, national security military and covered rebel hideouts and there was all out war on the road and it was just a bloody mess for several hours you would have driven right into it so that kind of thing of safety we we knew we were led by god and our and our motto was the safest place in the world is in the center of god's will so we started uh with prayer 
in Sudan, just like we did in northern Uganda, and would take uh, two or three, four weeks of prayer into these um, cities or towns that were the capitals of each state, and then hold massive crusades. When we'd hold these crusades in those days, we'd have 800,000 to a million. The biggest one was 1.2 million people. They'd walk seven days by foot because they heard we were going to be there. I didn't count those people. I don't know how to count them. It was 360 degrees of a sea of masses of faces as far as you could see all the way around us. The government counted them. And they do it by measuring square footage, you know, when you pack people in, in, in areas. And for seven days, we would just preach Jesus. And uh, we saw miracles. And I realized at that time that miracles were speaking a message to not only the, the, the world of occult and darkness, but also to the Islamic world, which was very, very thick and prevalent at that time, even before the referendum because the, it was the, the black Sudanese fighting for their freedom from the Arab Sudanese. And I realized people were coming and packing and the numbers were growing night after night at these crusades because God was just showing up as the God of the Bible. And if, he's, if Jesus is the same yesterday and for today and forever, we just said, you know, we're going to come and preach Jesus and Jesus is coming to your town, come. And they came out of the woodwork. In the 80s, God started saving so many Muslim leaders through dreams and visions as the church began praying, because I was in the Philippines in a Muslim terrorist area, and we began seeing that happen. That is still happening. But now we're seeing Muslims come to Jesus at, at, a, at a radical rate through the, through the miracles, because they want to serve the God that's alive. They want to serve the most powerful God, and they want to serve a God that loves them. And so when we come and preach Jesus like that uh, and the message of salvation, they're going, that's what we want. They were carrying people from witch doctors' huts and the mosques. They were all closed down and they were carrying on mats. One lady flew in from Khartoum. She was a very wealthy lady. She heard about the Crusades and she had a hip out of socket. She had many surgeries. Her name was Asha. And um, she heard that we were going to be in the town of Wow, which at that time was the Arab capital. This is before the referendum and before South Sudan became its own nation. She, had, she hired a private plane. She had her entourage of guards and everything, carried her on a stretcher where it, you know, like those cots we carry with sticks and just set her down there and she had her guards around her. And we're just preaching the Bible and preaching Jesus. And there, I mean, when you have a million people, it's masses of people crowding. There's no way to touch people, to find who's sick. And all of a sudden, while you're just preaching Jesus, that's where Romans 1.16 became so alive. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. And 1 Corinthians 1.18, the preaching of the cross is the power of God. And so we just preach Calvary and Jesus and what he did on the cross and that healing is for today and salvation is for today and you can be set free and the God that loves you and is alive and is powerful. And Faith entered Asha's heart as she sat there and listened because faith comes by hearing. Nobody prayed for her. Nobody touched her. She just, faith entered her heart and she'd come 
for healing and she'd come because she wanted a change in her life and as faith just entered her heart it what I say quickened her like you know quickened the Holy Spirit quickens our mortal bodies the same spirit that raised Jesus Jesus from the dead quickened your mind and it quickened her she jumps up on her feet her hip pops back into socket after many surgeries and the lady can't walk pops back in she starts running and taking off backward and forward across the front of the crowd where our team is preaching screaming I mean she's in her Muslim garb and everything just screaming you know Jesus and you know Yeshua Yeshua and um that testimony speaks a thousand miracles. Well, you should have seen him just coming and pushing to get. They brought a little girl in one of those meetings, about seven years old, dead, totally dead. And because we said, come meet Jesus, dead or alive. It's the same Jesus that was in the Bible. And uh, he's in us. And we're just bringing, we're just carriers of his love and his message. And they just threw her body up there on the platform and the mama left. And we go, okay, what do we do with this? And pick her up and just start praying over her. She opens her eyes. She starts breathing. And the mama carries her home. And she's just a skeleton because she's emaciated and deteriorated for quite some time. We, she came back the next night. The little girl's alive. We gave money for food, supporting her in school fees later on. The ministry did. And, um, and she's alive and well and, and in school today, in, in secondary school. So we could go on and on and write volumes just about these kind of miracles. But what was happening is we watched God moving in the hearts of all the way from government people down to just common marketplace people, uneducated, commissioners are coming, mayors are coming, governors are coming, sitting on the platform and they're looking at us like, we can't mobilize this many people for political things. How, how are you getting this many people together? I said, we aren't. God is. And they come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. I mean, believers. I've, I've eaten in the home of, I don't know how many governors of those states or, you know, generals. They were generals leading them to Jesus, praying in their offices because they watched what the living God did and they wanted to know more about this. And so the, the doors just opened like that. Uh, crusades bring thousands upon thousands upon thousands to Jesus. There's no way to count them all. Churches grow. We do pastors meetings in the mornings. We do Bible distribution. We do water baptisms. We do kids clubs. We do government dinners on a Saturday morning. So we just pack this week. And when we go, we strengthen the local church. But that doesn't make up for the need for discipleship. So we began leaving two months portable Bible school on the ground after these kind of crusades. One time we were in a wheel and we're up on the platform and they said, you know, the roads are dangerous. Yes, we'd been pulled over by gunpoint by the military saying there's bloodshed right ahead of you. I've missed ambushes by minutes ahead or behind. And they said, you got to get off the road. You can't go right now. So we pull over. There's no place to sleep except maybe uh, the Catholic convent always took us in we'd always look for the fathers or the nun, the sisters and find a place and they just put us up thank god for them and so um and then the military would let us proceed the next day uh this happened on the way to a wheel we get up to a wheel and i think we're third or fourth night fourth night into the crusade and gunfire open gunfire and people are so used to war they've lived in war 
And somebody said, oh, don't worry about the guns unless you're here firing back. So it didn't stop. And we, you know, people started kind of scattering and go for, but you're talking about a million people and they were going to stampede. And so we thought, do we, what do we do? Do we shut down? We stood in faith on that platform and we said, Lord, if you can stop rain, you can stop bullets. And these people came hungry for the gospel. So we stood up as open targets on the top of this elevated platform with 360 degrees of people around you. We lifted our hands. We didn't know where the firing was come from, who was after who. But we just prayed, you know, in the name of Jesus. We ask you to just stop that gunfire, Lord, so we can go right on with the message. And we commanded it to stop with the authority he's given us, as he said in Mark, and um, kept right on preaching. Gunfire stopped. People came right back in order, and we went right on with our meetings. And that's happened once. Another time, we were over in Capueta with a G-string naked kind of people. And it was right after that little girl got raised from the dead and other tremendous miracles. The commissioner was sitting up on the platform. And after about three or four nights of watching this, he said to us, if your God can do this, can your God bring us rain? Our children are dying of a drought. We're in a horrible drought. Our cattle are dying. Well, when somebody asks you that, especially on a platform in front of almost a million people, I think that one was about 800,000 people, you're not going to say no. You know God can, but it's always putting him on the line, you know, and, and I love it. We call it a Mount Carmel showdown. He said, can your God bring rain? We said, sure, he can bring rain. <laughs> so, okay, pray for rain. So here we are, and they've had six to nine months of drought. We finished our meeting that night at the end of the meeting, and we said, Lord, this nation needs rain. Would you show yourself mighty and strong on behalf of these precious people and their children that are dying? And we just prayed. People went on home. Everybody got home midnight, which was wonderful because everybody had time to reach home. Everybody's footing it. They reached home, and we had the heavens opened with gully washer. The next day, we couldn't even drive our jeepney through the low water crossings. It was just a flood. When the commissioner saw that, he came and said, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. Now, can your God stop these bullets from this tribe up in the mountains that are killing and shooting everybody, including government people? They're the naked G-string people that everybody fears. Can, can your God help them? So it was like one thing after the other. And we said, yes, yes. He said, okay, then go. Kind of like, you go, but I'm not going there because they're killers. And he knew that. They'd taken out military soldiers, everybody. I wanted to go. They wouldn't let me go. But a, a group of our team went, and he gave two military escorts and his vehicle. And it was four hours up the mountain through bush. And when they got there, the, the naked people, get, they get their guns out, and, they, and, and they're ready to, cocked ready, and they usually kill anybody and everybody, and that was the history of this tribe. And so they start their signal saying, you know, strangers are coming and, and get ready for, for, for kill. Uh, this tribe comes pouring out of the jungle, out of the woodwork, and they all got guns. They got a string of bullets around their neck and then a G-string on, and that's all they're wearing. And so they gathered around our team, which is about two or three people went at that time. We're in the car of the commissioner with two soldiers and uh, nothing against this hundreds that have just come out of the bush with their guns aimed. 
Now, one of our team members remembers the, the verse, when I go to Rome, I do as the Romans, as Paul said. And he rips off his shirt to identify with their nakedness. He knows how to do the grass touch. And they, he sees him on the top of the roof doing grass touch. He jumps up on the roof in a flash and starts, you know, weaving the grass roof with the guys as they're making the chief's roof. Well, this is all quite humorous to them. Probably never seen anything like this. And they just thought, well, these people seem pretty fearless. And what are they doing? And so they're just kind of watching. Nobody fires. And they watch this little scene go on. And then the, the, the chief of the village comes over to one of the soldiers like, do you have a business here? Do you have something you to say? Because he realized they're pretty harmless. And this is amusing. So the soldier could speak their language. Thank God. So he interpreted and he said, yes, we do. So the, our guy gets back down off the roof and the chief motions for them to sit down. And in about five minutes, our team has only about five minutes because these people are unpredictable. And you do one wrong move and, and, and you're dead. I mean, we drove through landmines and cannibal areas just to get up to these villages. And, uh, and, and I was in the car for that, landmines. What are the pink ribbons there? Oh, those are untapped landmines. What is this village we're going through? We're stuck in the mud. Oh, those are just the cannibal. I said, okay, I'm glad I didn't ask. We just keep going. So at this time, when you're up there and you've got five minutes to give them the gospel, where do you begin? Because they never heard of Jesus, never heard the word. What's a savior? What's this, what's that? So you go back to creation. That's why the Old Testament is also so critical in bringing somebody to salvation, to know that there is a creator and Father God, the creator, had a son, one son. And when he sacrificed his son because he loves you so much, the blood that this son shed for the redemption and buying you back from darkness and slavery and sin was all the bloodshed that's needed. No more bloodshed is needed. No more animal sacrifices and no more killing one another. Well, that made sense to them. Five to ten minutes, there's the gospel of John three sixteen, and he gives the invitation, how many of you want to receive this son and the sacrifice he made for you? Well, every hand shot up in the air. And the guy thought, our guy, our team guys, thought they don't understand what I meant. So he said it again. Do you really understand what I mean? Ask him into your life. Put your guns down. No more warring. Let him be your savior. He wants to change your heart. Explained it again. How many of you want this salvation, this exchange, his blood and for your forgiveness? If you do stand up, every person stands and the chief is weeping so then he said okay pray after me and through the interpreter of course they all did he said they kept holding on their guns they didn't put their guns down but they all prayed the next thing they ask is do you have any more of those stories are you coming back again will you tell us more stories then what happened Everywhere we go, that's the same thing they ask. Any more stories? Then what happened? Tell us more. Tell us more. You cry because the harvest is so plentiful and the laborers are few. People won't go. Why are these people unreached? Infrastructure's not there. Road systems are not there. Yes, it's more dangerous. Yes, it's more remote. But they're unreached. And Jesus said this gospel must be preached to every tribe and every tongue and then the end will come, Matthew twenty four fourteen who's going to go? And so 
those are the areas we're going to hit hard again now because of the insurgencies that have erupted in 2013 and 2016 since South Sudan became a nation and warring roads are closed we couldn't even get there we couldn't even get to these rural areas now it's not safe but we can go with government convoys that will allow us and I said we're going these are the people that have cried for more of the stories and we're going to do church planting and portable Bible schools so I was just up there last week and um, we're targeting all the unreached people groups and the places I've already been before, but it's been a couple of years because they wouldn't let us go. When 2013 hit, 2016, you can fly in with a plane and land if they can find an airstrip. But again, you can't take a whole team and all the Bibles and the equipment. I realize crusades are powerful for piercing the darkness and coming in and making a statement of who God is and he's coming to town through us as his believers and he's bringing a message of love. But we must remain with discipleship and teams must be sent. And I can't reach Africa like the Africans. So that's why we're training up an army of indigenous leaders to go and be those missionaries. We're gonna follow up with two month portable Bible schools, which means women empowerment, health, literacy, and everything else, but five hours of intense Bible school discipleship training a day for two months. And then we plan a church, and uh, that church multiplies. We've seen that in northern Uganda, over a thousand churches in the last, it happened in five years, and they're still growing now that it's been, you know, close to 10 years post-war. So we know God can do it, and that's the answer for the war. If we don't go in with the gospel, Faster than darkness and Islam is growing, we will never advance. Christianity has the mentality of just hold your territory. Let's wait till Jesus comes. No, if darkness is advancing and they're fearless about it, especially in the realms of terrorism, and they're willing to die for what they believe, where's the church? So when I challenge the Western church, I always say, look, Revelations 12, 12 says, the devil knows his time is short. He's pulled out all the stops. So shouldn't the church pull out all the stops? Full throttle forward. Life or death, do or die. So when I speak in Bible school now, to 75 to 100 students graduating from two, two years, to say, how many of you are ready to go north into these nations? Do or die at all costs. And it'll probably cost you your life. Every hand goes up. And they're ready to go. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I won't turn back. I won't turn back. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I won't turn back. I won't turn back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me. 
still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. I won't turn back. I won't turn back because I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I won't turn back. I won't turn back. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. I won't turn back. I won't turn back because I have decided to follow Jesus. Yes, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I won't turn back. I won't turn back. You can take this whole world, but give me Jesus. You can take this whole world, but give me Jesus. You can take this whole world, but give me Jesus. I won't turn back. I won't turn back. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Him. I won't turn back. I won't turn back. I won't turn That's another real oldie there that I dug out of my archives from Sam Halbert and Mick Fridley. And on this edition of Nightlight, we're hearing stories of people who've decided to follow Jesus into South Sudan, no matter what the cost. And hearing these stories, Carol, is just so encouraging that God is doing miracles in South Sudan as great as the miracles that you read about in the Bible, really. And it's also encouraging to know that there are Christians and children of God in these places who the Lord is using mightily, who are unsung heroes to the rest of the Christian world. Uh, Please tell us about some of the indigenous disciples in Sudan and how the Lord is using them to reach their own people. Bashir's testimony is one that stands out the most in my mind. Um, although there are very, very many, but um, one one time, and I spend 50% of my time in South Sudan, again, even the Sudanese look at me and go like, you, you didn't come by road, did you? You didn't co- just come in here by road? I go, yeah, and they just start crying like, you love us that much? And I said, yes, and they said, even Sudanese don't you know come by road, they fly. They fly into South Sudan because the roads are dangerous. I had just come by road, um, from a wheel on a five-day journey uh, back to Juba. And as I entered Juba, some of the believers there said, Carol, you got to meet this guy. And I'm thinking, okay, great, whoever, you know. So we sat down in one of um, this little church right uh, outside of Juba, and I'm, I'm sitting there with our team, and we're on our way back over the border to Uganda. And, and, and they said, you got to meet Bashir. He's just from Khartoum. Now, this is after the referendum, and it's after South Sudan had become independent. And this is in 2013. South Sudan gained its independence in 2011, and they've had some eruptions of war internally since then. But this is before the first eruption in 2013. So in walks Bashir, and he's a, he's a black Sudanese. There are Arab Sudanese, and then there are the black uh, national indigenous. 
and he was black Sudanese and he had come from the south about probably 20 years ago and gone to Khartoum even when it was one nation still as a missionary undercover and he was setting up his business and supporting mission work on his own through his own business which was videography he did very well at and worked um, with Al Jazeera training reporters and so forth but he would use his income to make uh, Arabic Bible stories for children on DVDs and um, numerous other teaching tools for undercover missionaries of the Sudanese who were going into, you know, Arab areas with the gospel, Islamic areas. So this was all in Arabic. He spoke the standard Arabic, which was wonderful because that's what's spoken in the northern part. And he was using also his funds for equipping and doing leadership training and missionary equipment of the black Sudanese believers to reach in, into no, not just northern Sudan, but northern parts of Africa that are all in the 1040 window, unreached, and um, very hard to penetrate with the gospel because of um, either Islam or a cult, but mostly Muslim areas. So he had been in Khartoum for 20 years. Now, during that time, he had been imprisoned many times, captured and imprisoned because he was suspected to be a spy and be equipping people like this. And the people that he was training and sending into villages and areas throughout northern parts of Sudan, oftentimes would get arrested and um, brought for confinement and, um, and imprisonment in Khartoum and then execution. So Bashir himself, on many of his own imprisonments, was watching the arrest and imprisonment of these young, zealous, radical believers that he trained and sent out. And now they're in prison with him and up for execution. And one after the other, as they were executed, before they were, they would tell him their stories. So he got to hear the feedback and the fruit of what he had quipped and sent them out to do. And one after the other, they would say, we'd get up there to these villages. God would show us exactly the huts and where to go. We'd see a whole village come to Jesus from one hut after the other, from signs, wonders, and miracles, and get turned upside down in a week, and we knew it would cost us our lives. And Bashir would ask him, why did you do it? And the, the answer was the same, one after the other. What is our life in exchange for a whole village coming to Jesus? Our eternity is secure, theirs is not. Why wouldn't we? One of them I asked, why did you go? And they say, have you ever seen David run away from Goliath? Are you kidding? Or the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bow their knee to the gods of Nebuchadnezzar at that time? They said, if we die, we die. But we're going to stand for the testimony. So Bashir would watch him executed. Now, he didn't face execution himself because he was suspected by the Muslim leaders at that time that he was a spy and they wanted his information. So they kept saying, give, it, give us your database. He'd have to hand him his website, but he set passwords to where they flip every 10 or 15 minutes and it was confounding the mind, even of the lawyers. It made, it, made them suspect even more that this guy's a spy. So they beat him aggressively 
kick him, smash, smash, all kinds of torture. He didn't even go into it because he was weeping. It was so painful. It was only two days out of solitary confinement when I met him for the first time. And then they'd release him and then follow him to try to see what his movements were in building and raising the underground church to go into these areas. But this last time they arrested him, they said, this is it. We're, we are executing you. They put him in solitary confinement and they fed him breadcrumbs through this little hole in the top of, the, of this uh, cement cell. Watching him on camera, if he moved his lips, they came and smashed his head on the concrete, kicked his guts in with, his, with their boots and all kinds of whippings and beatings. It was a little toilet hole and that was his only water for drinking and urinating and everything else. And they said uh, 21 days, it was, either, it was either 21 or 31 days, I can't remember exactly right, and that then it's your execution. If you don't give us the information we need, the database, why you're doing this, and who are all of these Jesus people that are going north, converting our, our, our people. He didn't give the information. They had the database, but again, the password kept changing and made him angrier and angrier. So the day before his execution, in walks an Arab lawyer and said, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm going to give you one last chance. You either turn over your information to us and your bank account and your vehicle, your business and everything you own and get on the next plane out of Khartoum and never show yourself again in Sudan, North Sudan, or tomorrow's your execution. So they gave him a choice, miraculously. Obviously, he chose the first because he was alive and I saw him. So he gets on the next plane, deported out, lands in Juba. Some believers meet him. And I'm sitting there the next day telling us his story as we sat on the floor around him listening like we're listening to something out of Voice of the Martyrs, just bawling. I'm bawling. And I'm going, Bashir, what can we do? How, how can we get in there? I want to go. He said, you can't go. You're too noticeable. You're security. You're a security risk, but you can raise up an African army to go. He said, we need Arabic Bibles on solar. We need USB drives. He said, I just gave my last ones away and so, so on and so forth. And then I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to get well. I'm going right back in there. He said, I've got to go to Dubai. They're sending me to Germany for treatment. Found out later while he was sitting there talking to us, his skull is cracked. And all of his internal organs are damaged and bruised. They thought he was going to lose one of his kidneys that was smashed from the kicking and beating. I mean, he was a mess. And yet he held himself together. And his final words to us were, it is not going to be the organized religion that wins the Muslim world to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be the radical, sold out, on fire, zealous, young, indigenous missionaries ready to die for their faith. And they're going to turn the villages, one village at a time, upside down for Jesus. It's going to win the Muslim world. And I determined at that time, God, how can we raise this army? How can we send them? I asked Bashir for his phone number, email. He said, I can't give it to you. They'll follow me and I'll be dead. So we left, we prayed for him. I thought I'd never see the man again. Two years later, 2015, I'm in Juba and I'm organizing the national prayer gathering, which was an amazing story in itself. A thousand believers, political, government, intelligence officers on their faces on the crusade ground for 11 hours a day, seven days, 77 hours we prayed. And in the middle of that week, the first peace treaty was signed with, the, with internal government systems. It was miraculous. God did amazing things. But as I was there for that prayer gathering, in walks Bashir. 
to the crusade grounds. I just screamed. I couldn't believe it. I said, you're alive. You're alive. I prayed for you. I prayed for you. Sit down and tell me. So another two hours and I'm just bawling. What's happened since I saw you last? He said, I went down uh, to Dubai and then Germany, all these places. He said, I got better, came back over to Sudan. And he said, uh, South Sudan. He said, I went right back north. He said, I can't use my passport. So he said, I crossed the border at different places. God would show me at different times where to go. He reminds me not only of the book of Acts, but Romans 8, 14, as many as are led of the spirit of the sons of God. He said, I just, I live by the voice of God. Sometimes I cross the border inside of a gunny sack. They tie me to the back of a, a, of a cattle with luggage. And I, and I cross the border like that. He said, I've even been into Lebanon and gone on the back of a camel with luggage and crossed the border. He said, sometimes I get in a cattle truck and I sit down in the manure under the feet and I cross like that. And sometimes through swamps. He said, one time I went three days with swamp water up to my waist fighting snakes to get to where I was supposed to go into that region of Sudan with the gospel. He said, when I'm over the border, if I miss God's voice by one, by one direction, right or left, he said, I'm dead. So God speaks to me, tells me where village, turn right, turn left, turn right, turn left, and go to such and such a house in that village. I get there, he said, and the house is 30 to 50 people every time, the little house in this Muslim village, packed with Muslim dressed people waiting for me. And when I knock on the door and I walk in, they go, brother, you're here. Where? They didn't say brother, but, you know, they greet him. Where have you been? Where have you been? We've been waiting for you. And he goes, like, how did you know I was coming? And they said, the story was the same every time. A man came to us in a dream last night and said somebody was going to come and tell us about this prophet Jesus in our own language. Look for him and be waiting. And they said, we've been waiting for you. He'd walk in. Of course, this is a ready-made, you know, he's got their attention. It's a, re- it's a ready-made house church. And he begins preaching Jesus. He leads them all to the Lord. He said, I leave either solar Arabic Bibles or USB if I have any. He said, I'll stay three to five days and baptize them all. And as they give their lives to the Lord. And then he said, I'll leave one person or two in charge of the house church and give them instructions. Continue on. And they pack me a lunch. They never ask where I'm going. They cannot. It's a security risk. And I leave that village and God will tell me exactly which way to head by foot. And I walk to the next village. He tells me exactly which house to go in. Same thing. And he said, I do this house after house, village after village. He said, the last house I was in, I baptized 56 Muslim believers. They're a ready audience because they're so tired of the darkness, the oppression, the victimization of what Islam is. It it is a regime. And many of them were born in it. They they didn't have a choice. They've just, that's, that's all they've known. They've grown up in it. And they want the answer. They want the truth. And they want something better. And now we're working with Darfurian believers as well. 
not just others from Khartoum and training up, but Adam's testimony is phenomenal too. And he said he grew up in Darfur, it's 100% Muslim, but as he got to secondary school, Adam said, I began questioning the Quran and I began arguing with my teachers. In my heart, I knew it wasn't true. And I began arguing, saying, this is a lie. This isn't true. It doesn't even match itself. They threw me in prison over and over again, imprisoned. He too was deported, deported to Khartoum and almost killed. And at the last minute, some guard came in and said, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm going to help you get a ticket out. And he came out. Now he's a missionary raising up Darfurian believers from Juba and sending them back into Darfur with the gospel. Same stories. And so I meet randomly key people that are already saying, we're training them up and sending them, but only one or two at a time. Can you help us? Can you help us? Can you get the Bibles in Arabic? And that's our job now is to come alongside the people that God's already using like that. They need reinforcements. The laborers are few. They need resources. And the believers in the South are the most radical evangelists because they've just come out of this regime. And they're on fire for Jesus. They know what it tastes like to be free. And they want to give all their brothers and sisters up there in darkness and in bondage the same freedom they've just found in Jesus. It's beautiful. I'm crying. 
And that was the first song that we recorded at our studio when we first came to Uganda at the end of 1999, sung by Rachel Adhiri, Cry of a Continent. Nice to hear that one again, especially in light of the ongoing civil war in South Sudan. Like a candle in the night, it's nightlight. Carol, for those listening who'd like to know more about your mission, where can they go? How can they get in touch? As of now, we're Favor Africa Online, F-A-V-O-U-R, and the website, we're building it up and, and all, but we hope to put more and more of these stories on the website so the Western world knows there are laborers in the field that God is using, and it is the indigenous people. And we're coming alongside them because we live there, we're on the ground. I'm the only Westerner in, our, in the organization because other people don't want to go where I live, and they don't want to live how I live. And I don't have I don't have electricity. I don't have running water. I live, you know, very bush style. But the harvest is plentiful, and I've never seen it so ripe. And we're going to lose it if we don't reach it today. Jesus said it's not four months; it's now. That means if the harvest is ripe today, it will be rotten tomorrow. We're losing it. We're not getting to it fast enough. It's not. It's not to try to pick a fruit that's not right. It's falling on the ground and rotting. And we don't have to reason with people in bondage in these areas they're ready to run into the kingdom because they want freedom and they've heard that jesus is bringing freedom so continue praying for these regions because prayer has done tremendous amount as god is appearing to muslims in dreams and visions and transforming leaders this way but he's also coming with signs wonders and miracles and he's also raising up an indigenous army and uh, a lot more stories are in the book that's just come out. I didn't write it, but it's uh, the story, my, my life story since I've been in Africa. It's on Amazon, and the title is Send Me Where No One Wants to Go. And so you can find it there. But uh, yes, pray for this army of African believers that God's raising up. Thank you. Well, that's all for now from me, from Carol, and from our dogs, who you've heard making their contribution in the background. God bless. I'll be back again soon with another edition of Nightlight. Bye-bye.